Right. Um, today I wanted to talk about the way I finished my great books course. It's a, it was a two-year adventure. And so for four terms, the uh, students slogged through that. And uh, I think that there are uh, audio tapes of it, but I'm not really sure. Um, sometimes students have asked to tape things, I assume, in preparation for exams. But I don't know how many uh, copies of how many classes are actually floating around out there. But the hardest thing in any work of art, I would say, is knowing when you're done. In other words, Frank Kermode once wrote a book called The Sense of an Ending, in which he explored how difficult it is to finish a work of literary art. And uh, I think that's true for every kind of art, not just literature. Um, if you look at how the Iliad or the Odyssey end, right? Well, we have these things we have to tie up. So, you know, the climax you get at book 22, and then we have a bunch of other stuff to take care of. And it's not the only example like that by far. Uh, if you ever read Robinson Crusoe, um, he can't figure out how to end the novel. So the sense of an ending is a difficult thing. And it's also, it's particularly difficult if you're teaching the great books. Where do they end? Where do they come to? It's always been important to me to end my great books course, whether it's a term or four terms, with a living author. In other words, it's, uh, I think it's bad practice for teachers to finish off their course uh, with the implication that this is a dead tradition, that it got finished wherever you call, wherever you decide to call a halt to it, Nietzsche or Freud or Wittgenstein, whatever you want. I think that's a mistake. It's very important that students understand that not everybody that knows how to think and write and talk is dead. So, as a living tradition, I'm looking around for living authors to finish the, the, my great books course with. And one of the things I did, and I still am very happy to have done it, uh, one of the choices I made was Habermas. I think that he's uh, more respectful of rationality than the earlier generation of the Frankfurt School. And uh, I see him as a rather tragic figure because he's trying to hold on to the tradition of uh, the Western self, the Western psyche, as well as the, the Western religious universalizing impulse. And uh, in that respect, uh, he might be a modern an analog of Kant. So I like to have him as the second to last, or close to it, when I teach my big great books course. But the book I finish with is also by a living author. I do Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian. Now, this is a genuinely terrifying book. Uh, more than one eminent literary critic who's opinions are entitled to respect, even if you don't agree with them, uh, have described Cormac McCarthy as the greatest American author, or the greatest living American author, and also that his greatest book is Blood Meridian. It's the story of moral chaos. Uh, this is what the world is like before we get that very uncertain, very evanescent, 
very fragile thing called civilization. Now, one of the books that I sometimes teach when I do the great books is Freud's essay, Civilization and Its Discontents. And it's a very interesting essay because he expands his theory of the psyche into social questions. And since he believes, since Freud believes, that um, what makes people happy is the satisfaction of desires, um, he notes that you can't have civilization without the thwarting and frustration of desires. So what that means is civilized man is always unhappy. And so we are beset with by neuroses and things like that. And implicitly, the idea of what would be the happiest and best kind of human life is one where all your desires get satisfied and your desires get bigger and bigger. And you will remember, those of you who have read it, will understand that this is the tyrannical man in the Republic. There we go. That's the modern conception of being happy. No wonder we're so fucked up. Okay, what McCarthy's book, Blood Meridian, does is present the other side of the argument. In other words, he's taking Freud on. You might rename Blood Meridian uh, Civilization and Its Contents or The Lack of Civilization and Its Discontents. You th- I mean... In other words, Freud is, is, is talking about our first world problems, our rich people's problems, about how frustrated our desires are. What a tragedy. Um, Cormac McCarthy is talking about what's the, what the world is like without civilization, in which it's murderous and violent and horrifying, in which you actually get to see what a Hobbesian war of all against all looks like. Um, this is not a cheap grandstanding Uh, appeal to contemporary politics. Um, He's not, McCarthy doesn't take sides. Everybody you meet is worse than the last one you meet. Uh, White, brown, red, everybody is a horror because there is no law, moral or civil, and uh, as a result, violence reigns. Now, McCarthy gives us one of the most terrifying figures characters in, in uh, Western literature, not just American literature. It's the scariest thing since Moby Dick, I mean the whale himself, and that's the judge. He's a giant, seven-foot, hairless Gnostic who uh, seems to have magical powers. And uh, he is uh, a figure of evil. The, the the line he he gives in the in the book that stuck in me like a fish hook in my brain was, "War is God." I mean that's a terrifying idea. That's worthy of blasted Ahab. So my point is that the judge is a kind of splicing together. Remember, he wears a giant white ice cream suit in the middle of the desert while everybody's getting killed, and when they meet him, um, he's sitting alone in the desert. And everybody believes they've met him before. The first time we encounter the judge, he slanders a Christian preacher. He says that he raped an 11-year-old girl and had sex with a goat. So they try and lynch the preacher. And then the judge goes back to the bar and has a good laugh because he says, I just made that shit up. You gotta like the judge. <laughs> so this is, this is what the world is like 
without organization. This is what chaos is really like. This is the Hobbesian war of all against all. So, um, one of the bandits that the judge rides with says that uh, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And And the judge responds scornfully, what else would any well-formed man want? <laughs> All right, so um, the judge is a terrifying figure of moral anarchy and also of moral hubris. He allows things to exist. Um, we juxtapose this with the anonymous main character who is initially named the kid, but at the, towards the end of the book, he becomes named the man. And uh, he's extraordinarily violent. He uh, drifts from, uh, I believe it's Tennessee where he gets born, down to New Orleans, and then from there to Texas, because, you know, in the 1840s, it's completely aimless and uh, anarchic. Okay. Now, there's a book called uh, Empire of the Summer Moon, which is a history of the Comanche tribe, and that's one of the main tribes, the Comanche here. And the Comanche were known for their ferocity in war and for their extraordinarily extraordinary abilities on horseback. They could shoot their arrows while circling uh, a group of enemies uh, who are standing, and they would wipe them out. Um, in many ways, if the repeating rifle had not shown up in this context, the Comanches might have turned into the American analog of the Mongols in the old world. Uh, They were known, the Comanches, for uh, uh, murder and rape and torture and then kidnapping of one or two children if they were of the proper age so that they could enter the Comanche tribe. But uh, they're... Well, the reason why, called, why the book was called The Empire of the Summer Moon is that the Comanche could ride by the full moon in the summertime, and they used to show up at isolated uh, houses in uh, Texas or New Mexico or wherever they were going or wherever they happened to be and uh, massacre the inhabitants. But, of course, um, those that weren't killed initially were elaborately tortured to death. And then that's traumatized children sometimes would be taken. Sometimes they'd just be killed, too. So uh, it's not that there's anything particularly uh, nasty about the Comanche that isn't true about the Mexicans. It isn't true about the Americans, right? In other words, um, what moral anarchy really looks like is absolutely terrifying and horrifying. It's the stuff of of waking nightmares. I remember one description of a Comanche uh, charge and all the uh, Indians were wearing uh, clothing that had obviously been stripped from a wagon train or a, you know, a group of, uh, of American settlers or uh, you know, pioneers. And uh, so one was wearing a bridal veil and one is wearing a frock coat inside out or back to front. And uh, they looked like, and, and then the way uh, McCarthy describes uh, the scene. He describes it as death hilarious. Now, who the hell would have thought up that conjunction of words? I mean, that's by itself frightening. 
And there's a, also a definite biblical tone to the way he writes. It is very serious and heavy. And he loves exact detail. And uh, we follow a scalping party of scum led by the judge. Uh, and eventually they end up dead too. But they kill a whole bunch of Indians, but mostly the peaceful ones because they're easier to get and a scalp is a scalp because they're paid by the scalp. Isn't that sporty? Women, children, everybody, kill them all. And what the, the scalping party is doing is exactly what both the Comanches and the Mexicans are doing. That's messed up. I mean, everything you look at here, I mean, this is, this is pandemonium, which is another name for hell. I mean, every demonic thing has been, has been unleashed here. And at the end of it, this is great, at the end of the novel, we get a kind of epilogue. And it's some years after uh, the chaotic frontier scene Government has been imposed by force. Oh, by the way, how do you expect government to be imposed otherwise? That's not a defect. That just has to do with the fact that look at who and what we're dealing with. What, you want to talk them into giving themselves up? Don't be stupid. All right. Um, the epilogue. People are two, I guess, cowboys or settlers are moving along the countryside that was the scene of all this brutality and violence and terror. And uh, they're putting in a barbed wire fence across the land. And what that is is the creation, because remember they are the same distance apart, it's the creation of a Cartesian coordinate grid. <laughs> in other words, it's a jar on a hill in Tennessee. I don't think the listeners are going to catch that reference. Uh, okay. You could tell them about it. Okay, it's important to read poetry, for God's sake. What kind of <laughs> culture is it that we, no one knows anything about Wallace Stevens? Here's the deal. You expect everyone to know Wallace Stevens offhand? Yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with people? Dad, I read it last week. Good for you. I'm glad. Yep. I wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> I mean, look, Continue. the sooner you get the chance, read a, a Wallace Stevens poem called The Anecdote of the Jar. It's about order and chaos, too, and it's very beautiful. Um, what we're doing here is laying down a distinction between my property and your property. This represents law, order, and rationality. But here's the spooky thing. This is the... Uh, the magic realism part of it, because this is, the whole novel is all too realistic. But as they pound these stakes into the earth and then put their barbed wire around it so that they can keep their livestock in, the stakes emit little sparks and flames for, as, you know, as they go into the earth. And my reading is that Civilization is a very fragile and ephemeral crust that has formed over the roof of hell. <laughs> and if you don't like civilization and you think that we need something perfect and we should have it soon and all that kind of shit, 
if you're interested in being destructive towards the civilization you've inherited, have a care. Because it's, as, as the great, late great Leonard Cohen said, oh, and by the way, you're not going to like what comes after America. <laughs> All right, well, granted, our civilization has many things to object to and many things to be critical of. But you have to remember that critical, in most cases nowadays, means destructive. Well, Freud says, yeah, isn't it a shame we have civilization? And Cormac McCarthy says, well, isn't it a shame we have that we don't have uh, chaos? Because that's so much worse. So I would put Freud's civilization and its discontents head-to-head with McCarthy's blood meridian. You don't like civilization, you want to get all Rousseauist because you feel like it's oppressing you and, and distorting your natural feelings and emotions and desires. Well, I tell you what, when the Comanche used to stop in for uh, a, a visit on a full moon evening, um, it was like Alex and his droogs in A Clockwork Orange, except bigger. There were more of them and more of people being assaulted and killed. This involved uh, torture, elaborate tortures, and gang rape. Okay, so my point is, don't, uh, don't discount how important civilization is. And above all, don't believe that because people have been history's losers and they were on the, uh, the, uh, the uh, receiving end of destruction, you know that they're only there because they destroyed the prior inhabitants. Right? That's what's been going on through most of history. The amazing thing is not that we have governments and states and laws that restrain our impulses and our libido. The amazing thing is that we stop doing that to each other. If you want to know what human nature is really like, whether we're really kind of nice bush hippies who used to groove together and you know smoke dope and eat mangoes, um, ask yourself how many Denisovian friends you have. The answer will turn out to be none because they died out 30,000 years ago, along with a number of other competing hominid species like the Neanderthals. Um, and you know why that is, right? They met us. <laughs> right? So we wiped out all competing species and then we did a pretty good job weeding out our own species of anyone that was, uh, <laughs> um, that was able to be taken advantage of. One of the things you find when human beings come to a new geographic environment is that all the big things that can be killed get killed. Doesn't matter where they are. Doesn't matter what they're killing. They will kill it. They will eat it. Why? Because it's easier to eat, try and eat an elephant than it is to you know, chase after 300 birds. So uh, the big point is this. With all its defects, I like civilization. And my entire two-year course was an apology for civilization. And I'm not going to do the stupid thing of saying, oh, you know, we can't criticize the West. Criticism is what the West is about. But the problem is, is that we've lost a sense of proportion about criticism and admiration. If you take a look at what people are actually like, one of the nice, there are three epigraphs at the beginning of Blood Meridian. One of them is from a, a paper in Yuma, Arizona, where... McCarthy lives. And it says that some anthropologists found uh, uh, human skulls that were, I think, what, 
500,000 years old or something in Africa. But the thing was, they showed marks of having been scalped. <laughs> okay, well, that's why you don't have any Denisovian friends. Because before we had steel knives, we managed to think up scalping people with, with blasted rocks. This is what human nature is like. And the amazing thing is not that we do stuff like that. The amazing thing is somehow we found a way out of that labyrinth. So before you cash in the civilization that you think is so defective, ask yourself how much sacrifice and how much pain and suffering and work and sweat went into giving you that civilization. And if you don't like it, yeah, well, try Cormac McCarthy's moral chaos and see how much you like that.